This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Welcome once again, everyone, to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we teach you how to defend the truth of Christianity and the benefits that come from Christianity to the individual and to society at large. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. Today, Mike, we have a great show. We're going to be continuing our discussion about the conference that we went to down in Maryland. We went to a conference called Loving God With All Your Mind, put on by Mount Airy Church and Biola University. So they had many speakers there, and we took notes on it, and it was a great time. It was a great time. It was very, very uh, uh, stimulating, not only intellectually, but also from a faith perspective, uh, confirming what you and I are, Keith, we are actual evidences of faith in action, and that's what this show is all about. In fact, while I was preparing for it uh, today, I was thinking about how you and I are products of not only our past and our pre-belief days, but also what we saw as evidences that thrust us into the position that we are today. Right. Both of us were coming from non-believing backgrounds. Backgrounds. Exactly. And it was the evidence that led us to conclude that Christianity is true. Correct. There's a quote that I have from Francis Schaeffer. In fact, Francis Schaeffer was one of the people that I modeled much of my ideas from. He and C.S. Lewis, as an early Christian, I read many of their books. So I have a quote from Francis Schaeffer about this very topic. He says, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T, truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that total truth and then living in the light of that truth. So that is from Francis Schaeffer, and that's what this show is all about, is helping us to see the evidences around us that support the truth of Christianity. And one of those came this past week. I'm sure that many listeners were watching the exciting news as they brought the Chilean miners up out of the mine that they were trapped in, and... Do you know how this points to the evidence for Christianity? Uh, Yes, I do. Oh, because we talked about it before (laughs) the show. (laughs) Okay, then how? Okay. To the man of the 33 miners that were trapped for over 69 days, to the man, none of them wanted to be the first one out. Right. They wanted to be the last man out. Now, that how can that be in an evolutionary model? How can it be? In an evolutionary model, the biggest, brawniest guy would have punched everyone out and been the first one in the the capsule that was designed by NASA. That selfish gene, right, that Mm -hmm. selfish gene would have driven them. 
Exactly. Absolutely. This is one of the points that evolution does not explain morality. Where does morality come from? But Christianity does explain morality, and it's a better explanation for human behavior, why we act the way we do. Because there is a moral law giver. Absolutely. Well, there's somebody who disagrees with that. This fellow wrote an editorial that wound up in USA Today this past week. A scientist, not a philosopher, and as we get into what he wrote about, you'll see why very obvious that he's not a philosopher. But I'll just read a few lines. I'm sure many people read USA Today. They probably came across this editorial. Unfortunately for maybe teenagers, people who are not terribly familiar with some of the evidences for Christianity, it may have startled them if they believed at first account what they read. Because supposedly this guy's an authority. I mean, he's a scientist. He's saying that science nibbles at religion from the ends, relentlessly consuming divine explanations and replacing them with material ones. The title of his editorial, by the way, is Science and Religion Aren't Friends. Now, I'm not sure what he's talking about. He may be talking about pagan beliefs, that things like God is in lightning, where the seasons come from, and so, in some sense, naturalism has gotten rid of pagan beliefs, but certainly it doesn't have anything to do with Christian beliefs. Has science done away with the Christian belief that God created space and time? Uh, No. In fact, the scientific evidence supports that more than ever. Has it gotten rid of the Christian belief that God created the earth as a habitat for living things? No, actually, science continues to show more and more that the universe was fine-tuned for life. Has it shown that God did not create life, that science has an explanation for the origin of life? No, in fact, the more we learn about life, the more people abandon any kind of explanation for the origin of life at all. So that's a... I think he's talking about paganism. He's certainly not talking about science nibbling away against Christianity. In fact, those gaps that he talks about are getting larger and larger. He says evolution took a big bite a while back, and recent work on the brain has shown no evidence for souls, spirits, or any part of our personality or behavior. Again, apparently he's not aware of the work of neuroscientists and PET scanners that have shown that there is a spirit that can control the brain, that actually rewires the brain, which uh, you've got that book, Mike, by Dr. Schwartz from UC Irvine. UCI has been repeated by a Canadian neuroscientist. Let's see what else he says here. We now know that the universe did not require a creator. Well, I don't know where he's getting that from. We now know that the universe... A Kalam cosmological argument that's been developed over the past 50 years actually shows that the universe does require a creator. He might be referring to Hawking's new book, because Hawking made the statement that we now can explain the origin of the universe because of gravity. Well, okay. You know, this is obviously a bad philosopher. Hawking might be a great cosmologist, but he's a bad philosopher, and this book is really not 
picking up much traction even amongst atheists because they realize that he's put the cart before the horse and you have to be able to explain where gravity comes from. You can't just say that I know that something came from nothing because of gravity. Well, gravity is something. It's not nothing. And gravity has to have celestial bodies exerting their gravitational influences on each other. Yep. So I won't go over the entire editorial. It was a long editorial, actually, about two pages it printed out. But just to say that he does go into other urban legends that he's drawn from things like the Da Vinci Code. I mean, so he's taking evidence from fictional works and claiming that these are evidence against religion. Uh, Let's see, I underlined here, religions have duped it out for centuries, spawning humanity's miserable history of religious warfare and persecution. Well, we've done whole shows on this topic. In fact, that's quite the opposite, that it is atheism and anti-religious bigotry that has led to ideologies that have resulted in mass murders during the past uh, hundred years that have far surpassed anything, any wars committed by anything in the name of religion. So you're talking about Stalin and and Pol Pot and uh, Mao Zedong and and all of the other um, communist, irreligious, if you will, atheistic leaderships and regimes that have persecuted not only Christians, but anybody with an ideology uh, not consistent with their own. And we're talking about millions and millions of people who uh, died at their hands, including uh, the Nazis in Germany and Hitler and so forth. Absolutely. Now, if I can take a stab at that, Keith, just kind of wrap it up. Um, what he's talking about is the gap God, where science through the ages has started to explain everything that, let's say, man of, let's say, 2,000, 3,000 years ago couldn't explain. Right, or even 5,000 years ago. And even 5,000 years ago. So God explained everything in a in a nice little package. No. And, and as, yeah, in the old days. You said God explained everything. Well, man, man explained, explained everything, everything in the terms as of God. In a paganistic, yes. God-like atmosphere. Right, and everything, the tree has God in it. There right. are evil demons that do things. But as science has revealed more and more in, in, along the lines of naturalism and materialism, right. then there's less and less and less room for God in any of those explanations in the naturalist's mindset, in their own philosophy. Okay? Now, well, but, even in anybody's philosophy, there's less and less room for godlike deities and evil demons. Okay. And That's he, true. And he even alludes to Darwin's work on evolution from 1859. Yep. And everything up until that point, is actually true, what he's saying. The problem, the problem is that in the last 20 years is that the, the universe is now being explained more and more and more with you know, telescopes and, and spectral analysis right. and, and all the other Electron scanning, yeah. microscopes. Yeah, and well, that's, that's the new universe, which is the interior to the cell. Yep. So that whole domain of new findings with the scanning electron micrographs and so forth is new. The genetics that we now know over the last 20 years is now new. Right. And it's harder and harder for scientists to explain it without coming back to the conclusion that God designed it. Exactly right. Because it's incredibly designed. Right. It's incredibly complicated. And it's not something that happened to evolve over billions and billions of years, as Carl Sagan would have said it, right. uh, just by chance, random events. There's nothing in the cell that's random. It's all directional, and it's all functional, and the, the most amazing thing is that it replicates itself. 
Yes. And they can't explain that. Right, right. They know how it replicates itself, but they can't explain how it first started to replicate itself. Or, or why it would, what kind of advantage it, that would exactly. give. Exactly. So th they're creating more questions than they are giving us answers. Well, you and I, it looks like coming going forward, we'll be getting some opportunities to debate some atheists like this guy who wrote for the USA Today. We're in uh, contact with a atheist podcast that has asked us to be on their show, and I, in turn, in the last email, offered for them to come on this show also so that we can debate them there. It's very funny because they're very similar to us. They're two guys who do a, a podcast. They don't have a radio program, but they do have a podcast, and they are ex-Mormons. One of them is a physician, mm -hmm. just as in our case. So hopefully that will work out soon, maybe after they're kind of busy, I guess, uh, with Halloween coming up. So after that, after they're done with that, it looks like we may be able to go head-to-head -head with them and see who's got the better arguments. But, you know, Keith, there's another parallel there. Yes, uh, I'm a physician, and mm -hmm. the other guy's a physician. I'm not sure if he's an internist or some other type of physician mm -hmm. uh, like myself. But the other character in that group, I, I can't recall their names, he was actually in uh, a seminary for yes. the Mormon Church. Right. Just like you are budding towards a ministry, Right. this guy is out of the ministry, if, if you will. Right. So, um, yeah, they're interesting parallels. Yeah, exactly. Along this, and then secondly, we've been we've been asked by a student from Stockton College, which is a local for those who are listening to us by podcast. It's a local college, four-year college in the area. Although, actually, I think it's considered a university now. Yes, Rich, Stock Richard Stockton uh, University. University. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, they want us to come and debate one of their professors there. So please pray for us that that all works out well. Mike, let's jump right into the topic. You've got some notes. I've got some notes for the conference that we were at. Yeah, you know, when we uh, stopped uh, the show last uh, week, we were talking about the uh, historical reliability of the Bible, and we were just starting to get into the uh, archaeological uh, evidences uh, that support uh, the biblical uh, documents uh, that are alluded to uh, in various uh, books of the Bible. Yep. Um, one of them that that we, I think, touched on but didn't quite uh, develop was the Tel Dan Steel, and that was uh, one of the first uh, extra-biblical mentions of the historical figure David. Right. Now, there were some television shows on recently uh, that suggested that uh, David was never a king and that David right. was, was, you know, fictional uh, character uh, written by, you know, these guys who wrote the Bible who were just writing fiction. Right. And uh, there was no evidence whatsoever of his uh, his castle, his reign, his, you know, his, his locale. That he ever so existed. That yeah, he critics said that he, yeah, didn't even exist. And then, lo and behold, the Tel Dan Steel was discovered in 1999, and it mentions David right. going back to the 8th and 9th century B.C. Mm-hmm. It also mentions Joram, Ahab, Ahaz, and Hadad, all characters that were mentioned in First and Second Kings. Mm -hmm. You know, again, there's a gap for you. It's the pushback against the critics, the archaeological critics, who keep saying that this person never existed, this city never existed, yes. uh, because it's only mentioned in the Bible. Well, the more they dig, the more they find how accurate the Bible is. So is it historical fiction, or is it the real deal? Right. Now, we have some more information here. Uh, the Winged Bull of Sargon II. Yeah, this was new to me. I had not heard of yeah. it, about this. Yeah. This was a piece of rock, a 
inscribed stone. Mm-hmm. Yep, inscribed stone. Think of a tombstone, folks, if you want to get a visual image of a tombstone with somebody's name on it and the image of a winged bull. Uh, this was found uh, in Iraq, uh, in modern-day Iraq, and uh, in Isaiah uh, chapter 20, verse 1, is where uh, Sargon II is actually mentioned. Right. So and this is a true historical character that's mentioned in Isaiah. Right, so, but the critics said that he never existed. Yes, exactly. So again, more proof that what the Bible said is actually true and is an accurate history going back uh, centuries. And then uh, one of the final things that was mentioned was the... Uh, yeah, try pronouncing this one. The, the Nebo-Sarsakim Ooh, tablet. Good. Was that pretty good? I think so. How would you say that? Yes. Nebo-Sarsakim sure. tablet. And uh, it actually describes uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, in his victory over Israel in the 6th century. Right. Now, he was a known character, a mm-hmm. known real character, but what's interesting about this is this tablet describes a fellow who, in Jeremiah, it says that Sarsakim gave gold in the temple. So he is, so he's just a, this minor character, just a brief mention of him. And yet, here we find that this was a real person. And so we found this. This dates back to uh, 595 B.C. So here's this tablet that describes this person, gives his name, and tells that he gave gold to the temple just exactly as was described in Jeremiah. Here's the bottom line, Keith, and I'm going to quote um, an article that was written in U.S. News and World Report dated October 25th, 1999, written by Jeff Sheeler, and he's making commentary about uh, the new archaeological findings in the New World that support evidence of Old World um, uh, documents and and history. Mm. And he said this. He said that these archaeological findings confirm the historicity of the Old Testament and life and times of Jesus. Now, I find that very interesting to be written 10 years ago in a secular um, news art, uh, newspaper magazine, if you will. Right. Yeah. So the evidence is very strong. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And we are talking about a conference that Mike and I went to. And specifically, we're looking now at the presentation done by S- Steve Schrader who had the Saturday morning session talking about the historical reliability of the Bible. If you'd like to comment and join the conversation, ask us questions, or contend against what we're saying, you can call us at 609-398-1020, or you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com, evidence, the number four, faith.com. Now, if you missed our last show where we were talking about the first part of this show, uh, you can actually go to iTunes and download that show on the iTunes podcast section. Exactly. Um, and the other thing I'd like to mention, too, Keith, is that this show is supported in part by Grace Community Church in Waterford Works, New Jersey. For which we thank them very much. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, Steve then went on into the New Testament, and we had been going over the Old Testament historical evidence, and he went on into the New Testament historical evidence. Okay, and you know, he he made an interesting comment right off the bat, Keith. He said, do we actually have an accurate copy of the original New Testament? Does it tell the truth? 
And really, does it really matter that, let's say, we don't actually have an original New Testament document? Right. We only have copies. Right. So does that really matter? Well, does it? At initial first glance, we would think, yes, it does matter. But, you know, the key word here is accurate. Do we actually have an accurate rendition of, let's say, this, this book that I have in my hand called the Bible? Right. Does it accurately ref- reflect what was written almost 2,000 years ago? Right. And as we've explained on previous shows, it does not matter that you might be missing the first copy or the copy of that copy or the copy of that copy. It just matters that you have enough manuscript evidence to be able to piece together what the original said. All right, Keith, I'm not sure if I'm buying that, and I'm sure that there are some people out there that aren't buying that. Now, give me an actual scenario why, uh, uh, let's say, how I might be convinced that what you're saying is true. All right. Well, Steve discussed a method called Aunt Sally's Secret Sauce. Now, this was recently put out by Greg Kokel. It's been suggested we've even had a kind of a different version of it in previous broadcasts where we talked about uh, a cookie recipe. But basically the idea is that this is not at all like Whisper Down the Lane, where after you've gotten to the fourth, fifth, or sixth person that the message is so deteriorated that you have no idea what the original person said. In reality, it's like Aunt, Se- Aunt Sally has a secret sauce that maybe perpetuates longevity. So she writes down this recipe of 10 items, and she gives it to her three bridge partners. Now, she's not computer literate, so it's not in digital form. She actually hand-wrote it. Well, her elderly bridge partners also don't use computers, so they hand-write it. They each do it 10 times and give it to 10 of their friends. So now you've got 31 copies out there. So what happens if... 34. Would it be 34? You've got, you got the original, you've got the three that Aunt Sally yep. hand wrote, and then you've got the... 34. Uh, what did I say? 31? Yeah. yeah, 34. So we have 34 originals. Yep. So what happens then if Aunt Sally's original is lost, the dog eats it? Well, she calls up her friends, but guess what? The three friends, their dogs have eaten theirs too. Now we have to go back to the 30 that are two generations away and take a look at that. So they gather, they get the information. Let's say they only collect 15 of them, okay? So they look at the 15 that they've managed to get back, and they see that two of them have spelling mistakes in them. One of them has been translated into Russian. One of them, there's an ingredient missing. And two other ones, there are additional ingredients have been added by somebody. Do you think it's possible to figure out what the original recipe was, even though you don't have it? And the answer is yes. Obviously, despite, it is yes. Despite translation to a foreign language, despite right. a couple of spelling errors, those are minor, minor problems. Right. Uh, not even a problem, really. And if there was an ingredient added or an ingredient deleted, it's okay, because you can actually figure out by the other 12 that are actually verbatim Correct. to Aunt Sally's original, then you can, then you can uh, duplicate Aunt Sally's original. Because the point is that even if there are occasional changes that someone deliberately did, let's say they deliberately inserted things they wanted in that recipe, 
or they didn't like certain things, so they took it out, just like you can imagine somebody doesn't like a certain doctrine or something, so they strike it out. We can still figure out what the original was based on all the others because people, they don't make the same errors, and they don't make the same insertions or deletions, and that's how you can tell. Since they're not the same mistakes, no one repeats them over and over, so you've got, you just go by the amount of evidence. Okay, so what does it all mean, Keith? We have uh, the Bible today that we have, what, 66 books, mm -hmm. 29 in the Old Testament, 37 in the New Testament, and it's a collection of books and or documents. Folks, I'd rather you think of these things as documents rather than books, not to confuse the issue, but just from a historical scientific perspective. Think of them as documents. Right. We have nine different writers, at least nine different writers over a 150-year span, when you go back to the originals, we have over 5,700 Greek manuscripts and over 18,000 non-Greek manuscripts. And these manuscripts were all copied very, very accurately through time, okay, to the point of 99.9% .9 accuracy, mm -hmm. okay? So the point is, is that with all of the original manuscripts going back in time through antiquity, we can actually figure out what the actual old, I'm sorry, what the New Testament writers were actually writing. Right. And one of the big points that uh, Steve brought out is that the time frame, the gap between when events happened and when they were written down is very short. And this is very important for accuracy's sake. For instance, Homer wrote about what happened in the city of Troy, but there's a gap of 500 years there. And yet, we know that Troy was a real city, but other than that, we're not too sure how ma how accurate it was. And Homer was not an eyewitness. That's right. It's 500 years later. It's being written down 500 years later. But with the New Testament, it's written down, there's about a 25-year gap for most of the stories, but even the doctrines were written down within five years. The crucial, uh, what you had to believe to be a Christian those kind of catechisms were written down within five years of the resurrection of Jesus. So the point is, is that what we have in our hands today that we consider a New Testament uh, document is very, very accurate by the, uh, the critical standards that are applied to uh, historical documents. That's right. And one of the other things that shows that the New Testament is better supported than any other writing of ancient history is the quotations, the historical quotations. So leaders of the church made 36,000 quotations from the New Testament. So the virtually the entire New Testament could be built back up. Even if we had zero manuscripts, you could still build it back up from just from the quotations. So the early church fathers in their writings quoted the Bible so frequently that we could actually reconstruct the Bible the entire, from, from their the quotations. Almost the entire, yeah, missing something like 11. 30, 36 verses or something? I think it's even less than that. Less, yeah. 11. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and the other thing is that we're only talking about the Greek manuscripts, but the New Testament was translated into other languages very rapidly. So we have over 18,000 non-Greek manuscripts which we can again compare with each other and with the Greek manuscripts to 
even increase the accuracy of what the originals actually said. Now, I want to make a comment about the Greek language, too, Keith. Uh, like the Hebrew language, it was very, very specific. And you know this because you're Greek? That's correct. <laughs> so what they say in Greek, what's written down in the Old Testament Greek, I'm sorry, the New Testament Greek, in the old language, the Septuagint Greek, is very, very accurate. What it says is what it means. You know, in English, you know, you can write something, and it can say different things to different people. Even though right. the same sentence is being read, right. people can interpret it differently. But with the Hebrew language and the Greek language, it's very specific. Right. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. I'm Keith Kendricks. And uh, we're continuing on a show um, uh, about the New Testament. And uh, this is uh, actually a synopsis of uh, what we learned in a... Um, um, a conference that last we went down to just outside of Baltimore. Last week, yeah. Yeah, two weeks ago. So next we had a talk by Frank Turek, who was a co-author of a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, which looks like a terrific book. I haven't read it yet. I've I've owned it for a while and, and breezed through it. It looks like an excellent book. So he gave the next presentation that lasted, I guess, about two hours. So it was it was very good. One of the first things he talked about, Keith, um, is um, does truth exist? Yes. Now, this goes back to your Francis Schaeffer remark mm -hmm. at the beginning of the show. And um, truth is truth, and it should be 100% universal. The problem is, is that the secular teaching of the day tells you that truth is relative. Right. And that's very problematic. And it's one of the ways that they try to chop the legs off of a Christian who would have you believe that truth is truth is truth, it's 100% universal, it's true for me, it's got to be true for you. Right. Now, he gave some great, great examples of how truth is truth, and it can't be relative. If I went to my bank and I said, listen, I, I need to withdraw $10,000, and I, and I wrote out my slip of paper and handed it to the bank teller, and she would look uh, at my uh, account, and she'd say, well, Dr. Mike, I'm, I'm really sorry, but... Um, you only have $3,250 in your account. I can't give you $10,000. What am I going to say to her? Well, that's your truth, but my truth <laughs> right. says that I have 10000 and I need 10000 Give it to me. Right. Well, you know what? If I persist and if I get hostile, I'm going to get locked up because right. I have a note that says I want $10,000. That's right. So, you know, my truth is not necessarily her truth, uh, but, it, you know, truth is truth. In, including for religion, too. Yes, exactly. So, so, yeah, and I think this is really good that he starts out this way by explaining what truth is and why truth is true for everybody. Because if you don't start with that, people think right, right away that you're talking about religion, that it doesn't have anything to do with truth, that it just is uh, like the flavor of candy that you happen to like. So he points out this very good, and he talks about the law of non-contradiction. So this comes from, uh, this is one of the things that we can know absolutely must be true. It's one of the laws of logic. And if it's not true, then you can't even communicate. You wouldn't be able to understand what I was saying. You wouldn't be able to communicate. You couldn't even say that the law of non-contradiction was not true, because in order to do that, you would have to obey the law of non-contradiction. But Keith, there is no truth. Yeah. <laughs> there can't be truth. Actually, you know what? There is truth. You know, from a scientific perspective, I'm going to say this, and then we can banter this back and forth. 
There is no truth in anything but science. What do you say to that? Well, that is from an old abandoned theory called logical positivism. That was uh, popular at the first part of the 20th century, and philosophers have really abandoned it because that statement itself is self-refuting. Why is that? It's self-refuting because that statement itself cannot be proved scientifically. But the statement was that anything that's true can be proved scientifically. It would have to apply to itself. Otherwise, it's self-contradictory, self-refuting. And the person who has contradicted themselves has said nothing. It's the same as if I'd said, Mike, would you please go, go over there and pick up that square circle? You know, what have I said? I haven't said anything. Yeah, I'm confused. Yeah, exactly. Or I could even just say, Yellow Thursday's political minefield. I, I mean, it sounds like I'm saying something, but I haven't actually said anything. I could just be making noise. I could just say blah, 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 blah. All right. Well, let me, let me just back it up and, and, and frame it this way. Uh, there is no truth in anything but science. You know, superficially, it sounds good. I mean, it does. Sure. I would, it I, sounds good. It fools you. I would have bought into that right. before I became a believer. Mm-hmm. Okay? So the question is, is that statement a scientific truth? And the answer is no. Right. It's a philosophy. Correct. Okay, and the problem that we have is that it's the prevailing philosophy of the times. Yes, it is. Okay. I, I loved his quote from Einstein where he said, scientists are poor philosophers. Gee, we, we see that as you know, evidenced yes. almost every day, including that editorial right. in the uh, USA Today. And here's the point. Science really says nothing. Okay, the scientists do. The scientists will look at facts, they'll look at figures, they'll look at analysis, right. and then come up with conclusions based on a pre-existent philosophy. Right. Science gives you the data, right, and it's interpreted by the scientists. So you and I can look at that same we can look at the same scanning electron micrograph of the interior of a cell, and the secular humanists are going to come up with certain conclusions and you and I might come up with an alternative conclusion. Right. Okay. Yep. So. And that's frequently, that's really what the whole debate is really all about, is your interpretations of the data. So then he went on to talk about the Roadrunner tactic. You want to fill us in on what do you have down for those notes for the Roadrunner tactic? You're looking at me with blank. You have nothing I, down for I, that. I think I missed that one. Okay. I think he, what he was talking about was the idea that, you know, Roadrunner will run away from the Wiley Coyote and he'll run off the cliff until there's nothing supporting him anymore, and then the coyote falls to the ground, but the roadrunner doesn't. And that's that idea that, that you know, you have to point out to the person that their idea is self-refuting. Mm. So it's not supported by anything. It's a self-refuting concept. So, that, you know, this is all to get towards the truth, the real truth. You have to so what you do, somebody makes a claim like that, that it's your truth versus my truth, you turn that claim around on itself. So that's the roadrunner tactic. And you uh, you show that it's unsupported, that it, it, it can't be true because it's self-refuting. He, uh, so that was basically it for the truth. you know. But I thought it was really important that he talked about that first. Then he goes into the next important question of does God exist? Right, and then he went into the uh, cosmological argument, uh, starting with the beginning of the universe, and and of course there had to be a beginning, and we know that. We know that there's evidence to support the thought that the Big Bang occurred, 
and that the universe was created, had a beginning, and started to expand. So let's go over that evidence. We, we all, all of the science right now shows that there was a beginning. To the universe. To the universe, exactly. Exactly right. So there, first there is the, you can look at the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is winding down. Everything is running out. Everything is falling apart. So if that's the case, then there has to be an initial starting condition at the beginning where things have not run down. You can kind of run it in reverse. You have to have an initial starting condition because we know that the universe is going to get to a heat death, just fades away into small levels of infrared energy, I think they describe. Mm -hmm. So the second law of thermodynamics is one evidence that the universe is uh, had a beginning. And just to remind our listening audience, a law is a universal law throughout the universe, no matter where you are, no matter what your relative position is in time or space. Law is law. So that should be something that's observed and repeatable no matter where you are. Right. A theory, on the other hand, is a theory. It's a thought, or let's say a philosophy, be it vain or not. So going back to evolutionary concept, you know, uh, that was written 150 years ago, it's still a theory. It's not a law, even though it's taught as yeah, a as rule. as if it is law, yeah. You know. The second evidence for the expanding universe is, or I'm sorry, for the beginning of the universe is the fact that it is expanding. Okay, so it's known now that the universe is expanding, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So wind that back up. What happens? You get down, you can't, you get down to where there's nothing left. You get so small that there's nothing left, down to what mathematicians would say infinite density or nothingness. So, again, you have to have a beginning. Right, and everything that uh, we see now shows that, even the uh, radiation afterglow right. of the Big Bang, and that's uh, a remnant of the heat uh, that we can see uh, sp uh, spectrally, spectral analysis-wise, uh, as a remnant from the actual beginning of the universe. Right. And then the uh, fourth item that he had was what he calls the great galaxy seeds, which refers to the fine-tuning of the expansion of the universe so precise that galaxies are able to be formed during this expansion. And the, and the fifth item that he brought up was that uh, Einstein's uh, theory of general relativity that, that was promoted in 1917 by uh, uh, Albert Einstein himself basically says that space and matter and time all came to into, an, into existence at the same time. So that would also imply that there was a beginning and that there was a beginner. And more right. importantly, and I love this quote from Robert Jastrow, who's actually an agnostic and a known agnostic. He says this. He says that astronomical and biblical accounts of the beginning of the universe match the Genesis account perfectly. Yeah. Yep. Very interesting. Written by an agnostic. So that is one of the primary evidences that God exists. Then he went on to the teleological argument, which is fancy name, but... It just means that you're looking at the design in the universe and life and how that shows that God exists. Well, you know, the, the most, I think, most powerful argument for this uh, teleological argument and the grand design and the grand designer is the anthropic principle. So tell us. 
Well, That's the anthropic th- principle. Th- this this is a theory that was pr- uh, a principle that was actually produced uh, based on all of the research and all of the evidence that show why it is that the Earth and only the Earth is the singular, most incredibly complex area in the universe where life as we know it could exist. Right. And the reasons why. Why is that? Right. It has to do with um, not only its location in our solar system, any closer to the sun and things would burn up. Anything further away from the sun and everything would freeze. Okay. Uh, There is a 23 and a half degree tilt of the Earth's axis, which gives us not only the seasons, the changes of seasons, so that instead of, let's say there was no tilt on the axis, we would have not only the equator and the equatorial zones and the temperate climates burning up from all this direct uh, mm-hmm. sunlight and direct radiation and heat. You'd have this, this arid desert expanding from the, not only the equator but up through the temperate zones. <laughs> but because of the tilt, you have seasonal changes that which are great for agriculture and so forth. Now, the other thing that happens with your, your 24-hour day and, and the, the revolution of the Earth and, and of course, the rotation is that things have a chance to cool down at night, right? Okay, so that things don't burn up. Uh, not not to mention the seasonal changes and so forth, but uh, you also have this moon thing that's that's rotating around the Earth every 28 days, mm-hmm. which controls gravity. You know the gravitational pull on the tides and so forth. Right. So you have water movements and and its effect on weather, and and all of these other incredibly complex things that are happening so that life that we know can exist on the earth right so it's this very uh, interesting idea that's why it's called the anthropic principle and for man yeah anthropos for man that it seems as if the earth and the universe was designed for man to be here yeah and one one of the other things that he he pointed out was that one of the largest planets uh which is near earth it's one planet removed after mars uh is jupiter Okay, and one of the one of the things that he showed f- of you know micrograph not moto- mi- micrographs he showed photographs of these huge meteoric craters that are on Jupiter. Right. Okay, things that would totally wipe out the Earth if these meteors had crashed into the Earth. Right. But because the mass density of Jupiter is millions of times more than the Earth, these meteors are sucked in by its gravitational field of force. Right. So that. You know, it that protects. huge planet sucks in that stuff yep. instead of it hitting Earth. Without it, life would be uh, very improbable on the Earth because of not being protected. So, yeah, many, many interesting fine-tunings that show that uh, life. And, and you know what's interesting, Keith? When when space shots are made by NASA and they propel these these things into orbit, and it doesn't matter if it's a manned orbit uh, um uh, vehicle, or if it's a a satellite mm. or or some other thing, the space station. Right. They all have a rotation on it. Think of a, a football that's being thrown by a quarterback, and the ball has a spiral. Uh huh. And there's a reason for that. Okay. If the thing did not have a spiral on it, whether it's a manned space capsule or some other item, it would burn up. Oh yeah. Because this rotational thing actually allows the heat of of the direct sunlight. Oh right. Versus absolute cold, which I think is what two hundred seventy-two degrees uh, uh, minus two seventy-two Celsius uh-huh, or something. Uh-huh. I mean, it's really, really on the other side. Yeah, on the other side. So yeah. it's absolutely freezing on one side and absolutely hot on the other side. You know, direct to the sun. Right. So this this spiral rotation of the vehicle that's cruising through space 
is there for a purpose. Yeah. And the Earth actually does that. Too. Right. Exactly. Unlike so, some planets that are tidally locked and completely inhospitable for life. W- which is our moon. Yeah, it's tidally the, locked the to the moon Earth. Is, right. Just for the audience, the moon is facing us, and we get the same face. Right. Although, no matter where the moon is in the orbit around the Earth, it is locked in. We just see the, the face of that moon day after day. It doesn't rotate. Yeah. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the show where we talk about the evidences for Christianity. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And we are talking about a conference that Mike and I went to last week. Mike, let's get into the evidence that he talked about from DNA, the teleological arguments for DNA. Well, uh, and we're going to use a quote uh, from Richard Dawkins, who wrote The Blind Watchmaker. Uh, I think that was, what, 1986? something like that, mid-80s, and he wrote this. And, of course, Richard Dawkins is uh, the uh, atheist supreme, um, and he's the mouthpiece for modern-day atheists. Uh, In The Blind Watchmaker on page 116, he makes this comment. The DNA in each cell contains enough information to be equivalent to 100 sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, that's each cell contains a complete set of chromosomes, with enough information as 100 sets. Remember, there's like 24 books in a set of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Mm-hmm. So there's enough information in each cell to contain that amount of information. And it's all in digital code. It's all in digital code. Now, when he made that comment 25 years ago, he had no idea of the, the revolution that was going to happen in genetics right. and all of the incredible complexities that were going to be elucidated during that time frame. Yep. And it's going to be very, very hard for an atheist to take today's modern genetic information and translate it into a concept where it says it was totally random chance, mutation, whatever it is, right. to give us the complexity of life that reduplicates itself generation after generation after generation with minimal, with minimal mistakes. Exactly. All right. Any more on that or we go on to the next argument that he brought up? Okay, so the third argument then is the moral argument. So the argument from objective moral laws. So he basically said that if there is no objective morality, then basically the Nazis were not wrong. Well, really, there's nothing wrong. You could murder, you could rape, you could pillage. There's nothing wrong with racism. There's nothing wrong with stealing. Nothing wrong with slavery or the Holocaust, for that matter. Exactly. Unless you just kind of put yourself in one of those mindsets where you say, well, the Holocaust never happened. It would all all be subjective. It would just be your opinion. Mm -hmm. Okay, so maybe you think it's wrong, but that doesn't actually make it wrong. Morals have to be objective in order to actually be wrong. And because of that, that shows that there is a moral lawgiver. There has to be someone to whom we're accountable when we feel accountable, when we feel that we have broken a moral law, something that we ought to have done. Someone well, gave us that prescription. Well, if, if I'm an atheist, Keith, I'm going to argue that uh, there is no moral lawgiver, there's no God, and that my sense of right and wrong comes from what the state's standard is. What are the state laws? I'm not supposed to steal. I'm not supposed to rape. I'm not supposed to plunder. So the state's prescription for me is my moral standard. Yeah, and that, and you would have to have some kind of alternative ethos like that. 
but it still doesn't answer the main question. And he described it like a map of Scotland, okay? Say you've got two opposing maps of Scotland. So one of them is the laws, the moral laws of Nazi Germany, and the other map of Scotland is the moral laws of the United States. So Nazi Germany is the state's prescription for the standard of moral law. Right. Where does that leave us? Right. Does that look like the real moral law? In other words, if the map that they're drawing doesn't actually look like an objective Scotland, if there's not a real Scotland out there, then either map is completely meaningless. So it doesn't matter. It wouldn't matter whether you've got, just because you say, well, it's the laws of my land that tell me what is right and wrong. What's that got to do with anything? So you might as well have the laws of Nazi Germany then. Right. Which would allow for the Holocaust, not to mention some other things. All right. Um, so he went on then to conclude that area about the evidence for the existence of God. He, he had given those uh, three major arguments. Then I thought it was also a good idea. Something that we haven't talked about much on this show is about whether miracles are possible or not. Now, you know, to me, I think, well, once you've proved that God exists, then why do you need to prove that miracles are possible? Because they one f- flows from the other. But actually, Frank argued that, well, you could still then believe in a kind of a deistic world, where you've got a God who created the universe, but he doesn't intervene at all, and so there's no miracles that can occur, and miracles are impossible in this world that we live in. So then that therefore negates any possibility of such a thing as uh, Jesus doing miracles or the resurrection even would be a miracle that could not possibly happen in this universe. So, Well, uh, if, if you look at the biblical tabulation of miracles, there's about 300 plus or minus miracles that are mentioned in the Bible from, from Moses down to Jesus, you know, with, with uh, the mosaic miracles of uh, not to mention the burning bush, but also the plagues that are described uh, Elijah, Elisha, uh, Jesus, the apostles, there's about 300 or so that are cataloged by the Bible. Okay. Um, and the, these are typically miracles or messages, basically, from God to people. You well, know, they what, confirm the message. Right. Right. The miracles are what confirms the message. So you see biblically that miracles don't really actually happen all throughout history. They happen at certain specific times. So you get a bunch of miracles around the time of Moses. You get a bunch of miracles around uh, the time of Elijah and Elisha. And you get a bunch of miracles around the time of Jesus. But you really don't. Other than that, there's not a lot. You get some with the uh, apostles. But that's because scripturally in the Bible, miracles confirm the message. That's the point. It proves that God is speaking when miracles happen. Of course, it doesn't prove it to you and I because we didn't see the miracles. But to everyone there who see the miracles, it proves it to them. Yeah, and I have to uh, uh, throw in here that going back to what we had just talked about on this show is that the greatest miracle is actually Genesis 1-1, which is the creation account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right. And you know what? The Big Bang theorists haven't come up with anything new. Absolutely. 
yeah. w- which I find fascinating. Well, they, yeah, they uh, now they're into the uh, multi-universes, mm. right? So to try well, to explain that. But all that does is push the question yeah, back yeah, further. It's, it's also a smokescreen. You have to explain where the multi-universe generating machine comes from. So, and in fact, the actual mathematics that they that they go through to figure out about the Big Bang and about the possibility of multi-universes shows that that, that even multi-universes has to have a beginning, that you cannot go back infinitely. Mm-hmm. So it's not only true mathematically that you have to have a beginning, but philosophically you can never go to an infinite regress. And then he... Uh, responded to David Hume, who was a philosopher that made the biggest dent on the possibility of miracles, claiming that miracles could not be accepted as being true. And basically his argument was that since a miracle is such an unusual thing, you would need an incredible amount of evidence to as proof. You know, you'd almost essentially need an infinite amount of evidence to prove that miracles happened. Um, But I think what's funny is that David Hume also did away with the idea of doing science because he showed that, for instance, science would say that make a, a inductive argument. Science is all about inductive arguments. Let's say that all crows are black. How do we know that? Because we experiment. We look at crows, and this crow is black, that crow is black, this crow is black, and we keep going on and on and on until we see, we make the determination or the theory, all crows are black, okay? Well, Hume says that's not enough because you can't see every crow, then you can't prove, you can't know for certain that all crows are black. So he essentially not only got rid of miracles, but he got rid of science too. So I think it's funny that uh, scientific atheists go to David Hume to prove that Miracles are impossible. That's very interesting, too. Um, You know, right now I think that the uh, naturalists would have to point to a genetic thing that would make sure that all crows are black. But then again, you come up with the mutation probability or an albino situation, and then then you have a problem there, too. There you go. Well, actually, I've heard that um, that people used to say uh, all swans are white Hmm. until they discovered Australia. Now you got black swans. And Keith grew up in Australia, so he knows. That's right. All right, any other notes on the miracles that you have? Um, no, but you know what, Keith? Uh, that might be worth doing a show on. Yeah, okay. All right, we could do a whole show on Are Miracles Possible and get more into it. All right, so he finished up then with about the New Testament, but since we already talked about that with one of the uh, previous lectures that we heard. I think we did a a good job with that. So his final question was, what is the purpose of your life? Who is Jesus and what is the purpose of your life? So think about that as you wait for the next installment of Evidence for Faith next week. Please remember to join us once again on Sunday at 4 p.m. Or you can check out the podcasts at evidenceforfaith.com. You've been listening to Keith Kendricks. I am Dr. Michael Arrakis. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. What a ghost town. He knelt down, don't know how. He opens his mouth, just the word help comes out. He's broke.